Can I do it? What, the intro? Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> do you know it? <laughs> no. The following podcast contains strong language. Welcome to the Silly Rebels podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm I'm cool. Uh, and joining me today is a super cool dude that's called Andrew. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> Are we using That'll this? Be, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> Got to shake it up a bit for episode fourteen. Yeah, episode fourteen. Keep it spicy, you know. Yeah, you know. Uh, every every episode is multiplied multipliable by seven. <laughs> yeah. I'll go back and re-edit episode seven to fit that. Okay, good. <laughs> Did you see that thing about Tenet? How I don't know if it was Chris Nolan or Warner Brothers, but they said that in order for them to show Tenet, eighty percent of cinemas worldwide had to be open for it to be okay. released at its initial release. For it date. to be viable, yeah, yeah. So I, d- I think it'll be delayed. Yeah, I as I was saying the other week, I don't see why they can't just delay it. It seems like it yeah. make a lot more sense. Well, they definitely won't home release it because Christopher Nolan's will be no. the better and about that. Like, to be fair, it's definitely, yeah, it's 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 for cinema, it should come out in cinema. Yeah, but, 100% for cinema. What I think would be interesting is, presumably once this is over, there's going to be a sudden surge of films. Like, you know, they've been holding back the tide of films coming out and they're all going to come out at once. Yeah. I hope they do a slightly staggered release because if everything yeah. releases all at once, it won't be viable well, to see yeah. them all, will it? Well, I have to because no one likes competition. It's It, it yeah. was like when um, Rise of Skywalker came out, Cats was the only other film that came out that week as far as I remember. Like yeah. nothing else new because they knew don't compete with Star Wars, give it a week kind of thing. So I'm assuming they'll sort something out when this is over. That's fair. I'm looking forward to Tenet. I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Tenet. It's interesting because we don't know anything about it either. No. So it's all that mystery. And in other news, there's a um, Tiger King film has been announced. Oh. A while ago. A dramatization. Yeah, dramatization. Um, and it's going to be starring Nick Cage as Joe Exotic, which I think personally is an absolute, absolutely fantastic choice. <laughs> I can't think of a better yeah, I genuinely choice can't think of that. anyone who, who's better suited to play Joe Exotic. <laughs> so yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting that they've decided to make a dramatisation when the documentary's been such a massive hit. Obviously, like that is the obvious leap, but what I mean is everyone already knows the story and the documentary does such a good job of telling it, like why it almost feels like there's no point them making it, if you know what I mean. yeah. Well, I guess it's sort of the interesting angle for me is because um, with a documentary, as much as it is leading you down a specific viewpoint, it's still sort of showing you a lot of the facts. But, you know, in, yeah. in the dramatization, there's more license to make stuff up. Yeah. So you to see to what, what stuff they do make up and how that will twist the story even further, like what direction they'll go with it. Because, like, normally these things is you have the, you know, the big dramatization first, and it's like, oh, okay, that's the story. Then a documentary comes up being like, oh, no, this is how I actually went down. Yeah. But now we're sort of doing it the other way around. So, yeah, so remember that. Um, you know Rush yeah there was when that came out and then like a few weeks later there was um, I think it was called like The Real Rush or something it was about the two drivers it's a really rubbish title yeah it was it was a terrible (laughs) title but it was a documentary about the real drivers and that was saying like the film's good but it's not 100% true like this is what 
actually happened or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's weird that it's this way around. Yeah, you're right. Presumably, is that going to come out on Netflix straight to streaming? We not I that? don't know, but I would assume so. They they appear yeah. to have the Tiger King uh, <laughs> franchise. <Right. laughs> yeah. The Tiger King cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and there was another thing that came out. Um, there was a news article uh, that one of the jurors who was obviously at the trial and they came to the guilty conclusion, they were slagging off the documentary, which is interesting because it's one of the it's like one of the only negative review not reviews, but you know replies to the uh, documentary I've seen. Like even though everyone in it has said, "Oh yeah, I like it," other than you know the dodgy dodgy people because they're dodgy fuckers <laughs> but all the innocent people have been like yeah the documentary's fine but this this woman who was a juror said that the documentary went out of its way to make joe exotic seem like this charming kind nice man who and she was like that's just not not who he is at all and it makes you feel really bad for joe exotic when he was guilty he was in the end worse, wasn't he yeah, <laughs> yeah he was hmm. bad I think, like as we were saying at the time, like it's sort of uh, the the claims of its of the animal abuse are sort of almost skimmed over at the end. Yeah, like we don't really see much about it. What you think, like if that's sort of the crux of his arrest and sentence, you think there'd be more on it? Because yeah, like most of his sentence was from the animal abuse. Like yeah, he did the mm. the the, the um, hiring an assassin and all that, but he still had fourteen counts of animal abuse, which made up the most of his sentencing. It's like that. Yeah, they just skimmed over that entirely. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. Like that's. Some extra stuff yeah. that's come out about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm going to talk quickly about Star Wars. Okay. Because I've been writing so much about it recently. It's basically all I can think of. Um, your enormous blog post, which is available yes. now at cityrebels.blogspot.com. Yeah, got your, I got your plug in before you could. Yeah. <laughs> You're part of the machine now, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Next, should we say the email address three times an episode? <laughs> Uh, but yes, yeah, so for those of you who haven't seen, I've I've been starting a um a written Star Wars ranked retrospective on the blog. Um, now it's been four parts, possibly five. And where can they find it, Nick? <laughs> you just told them, Andy. <laughs> what am I going to do? Repeat the address within a minute of myself? No, nah, I don't do that. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never at all. Um, but yeah, we we're having an interesting discussion. Uh, before we started recording, I thought we'd have now. Because on on the blog I've wrote uh, this is a mild spoiler if you if you care about the ranking of it, but I've I've placed Phantom Menace as my least favorite Star Wars film and Rise of Skywalker as the next worst. Yeah. But thinking back on it, because Phantom Menace, I basically feel no hate towards it or any or like I I basically have a neutral opinion on it. It's yeah. fine. It doesn't really it doesn't excite me. It doesn't really piss me off. It's just sort of there. But Rise of Skywalker, while I find is in some ways, it's a more enjoyable, more impactful experience. I think it's more damaging than Phantom Menace. So the question is, which one is truly the worst of the two Star Wars films? I uh, think it's got to be Rise of Skywalker, surely, because as as terrible as Phantom and Clone Wars are, they're still made with passion, I think. Like, George Lucas still mm. loved the yeah. universe and everything, and the characters, and wanted to make something that everyone would love. Yeah. And sell toys. <laughs> yeah. But that's one of the reasons I was sort of... I'm normally quite generous towards, like, the prequel trilogy. Especially, like, Attack of the Clones, which I rated as higher than Rise of Skywalker. Even though they're probably on at least equal footing quality-wise. But because Attack of the Clones was sort of 
passionate and came from a place of wanting to tell a story. Yeah. While Rise of Skywalker was very much a corporate creation. Yeah, that's that is the thing, isn't it? Like I feel at least the as bad as they are, they're still like lovably bad. Like look at all the prequel memes, like they are so bad they're fun and enjoyable like, you know, they're mm. fun to take the piss out of, whereas Rise of Skywalker is just a steaming pile that everyone's already forgotten about. <laughs> it ties into an interesting point in general, though, about sort of bad films versus good films. Because, I mean, there are films that are, you know, terribly made, but still enjoy you enough as a film, as a piece of entertainment. Yeah. So how bad can those films really be if they're entertaining? Well, that's, that's why everyone loves The Room, isn't it? Well, I mean, like, so, for example, like, Rise of Skywalker, like, it was, a t- it was a terrible film, really. And, like, the moment I got out of the cinema, it just sort of decayed instantly. But in the cinema, watching it, you know, it was big, exciting, big screen entertainment, you know. I was excited, I was enthralled, I was along the ride, even though I was sort of questioning why it was doing all this stuff. Yeah. But it's like, you know, no one's trying to pretend that Star Wars is high art. So the argument is, if the fact that it entertains you while it's playing, is that not enough? Does that really make it? A, is it really a terrible film if it still does its main mission statement? I don't know. Yeah, I guess you're right. It sort of served its purpose, didn't it? Well, I mean, I don't know. This, this is all the the thing I've been trying yeah. to think about. It's interesting because I mean, Rise of Skywalker isn't good though, is it? Like, just objectively, no, no one really likes it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. Because this is what I mean. Like, I don't. Rise of Skywalker pisses me off, but I don't. I feel, I feel like I can't give it like a negative rating because it's still, you know, it was an enjoyable blockbuster, and that's sort of what it was trying yeah. to do. Unlike, say, if we talk about something like um, Red Sparrow, I don't. Have you seen Red Sparrow? I have not seen it. I couldn't be okay. bothered with that film. From what I heard, and it's it not a like, good film. Yeah, every, that was the, the phase yeah. where everyone was dribbling at the mouth for Jennifer Lawrence, and that's pretty much how the film plays out it's very it's it's very creepy in its way because it's i mean it's basically about her being a russian spy but not in the sort of traditional james bond sense and essentially has sex with important people to get information out of them sense and it's there's something yeah. very creepily objectifying about it but like so you know compared compared to rise of skywalker this is a strange comparison <laughs> but my point is yeah i i i rated red sparrow lower because not only was it like a lot of things wrong with it but also i just wasn't engaged i got bored with it which I think is the a bigger metric for being a bad film, ultimately. Well, yeah. Rise of Skywalker was terrible, but it didn't bore me. But you never turned it off, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the interesting debate here. Because I think ultimately, with all the film, no matter if it's like absolutely high art or just low-budget slog, the worst thing you can be is boring. Because with high art, you can have the best... That's true. Because you can have the, you know, the best, most in- insightful message you can, but if no one's paying attention, then you've lost it. You know, it's the balance. You've got to have stuff that's actually engaging. So I feel yeah. like, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting debate. And I'm not quite sure where I sit on it. But I do think, it, in a way, being not boring is the is the ultimate, like, main point any film can score. Yeah. And they're definite. Yeah, you're probably right. A film... But that's the thing, isn't it? Like, I, the, the worst thing a film can be is, you know, a 5 out of 10. You know, the worst thing it can be is completely average, like, forgettable. Because, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because if it's better than that, obviously, you know, it's good and it's an enjoyable film. But if it if it's worse than that, there's still more to talk about. It being exactly down the middle is just like, whatever, let's move on. Yeah, being bland is the worst, yeah. Yeah, being bland is much worse than being bad. Yeah. I mean, say what you want about Cats, it's still, 
you know, one of the most memorable films I've ever seen because it was so insanely bad. <laughs> exactly. And like the, the Searchers, which we both hate. Yes. I know a lot yeah. of people love it for some reason, but I never stopped thinking about that film because it's so terrible in so many ways that I can't I stop really, thinking about it. I've got this. So when we learn about that film at A-level, mm. our teacher told us that, is it John Ford who directed that? Yeah. Yeah, John Ford was like, oh, it's a deconstruction of, of the, the racist issues at the time. And then we went on to study that in, um, in university and we um, read a load of interviews with John Ford and everything. And it's not a deconstruction of racist issues at the time. John Ford is just a racist. <laughs> and it's just like, this is, why is this such a revered film when it's just a racist man makes a film about a racist man? <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like, what? <laughs> also, like, so whenever I see discussions about The Search, and it, it turns up like Sight and Sound's top films of all time poll a lot, normally really high. And all I ever hear about is like, oh, that shot where John Wayne's in the doorway is like the best shot in cinema. No, it isn't. You know, it's not. It's rubbish. But that's just, that's such a that's such a film studenty thing to say as well. It's like, oh, but he, but he's framed within the doorway. It's a frame within a frame, and it shows how he's on the outside. And like, yeah, that's not <laughs> that's not a new thing. That's a pretty yeah. that's a pretty standard framing technique. It's everywhere. And like, okay, what if it's the first? It isn't. But it doesn't matter. Like, it's just not a very strong shot. It's quite a generic shot, really. And even if it was this amazing shot, you know. It's it's still one shot out of a two-hour film that's really boring, full of unlikable characters, full of racism. Yeah, not a single... That's another thing. Like, not a single one of the characters is likable. No. And it's like, the one... The person you're supposed to identify with, who's um, Marty, Mm. who's like the 116th Cherokee Indian man, and he's like supposed to be the one you're supposed to identify with because everyone's really racist to him because he's his granddad was a Native American or whatever. It's like, even he's an arsehole, though. It's like, he's the one yeah. glimmer of hope and he's just a twat. <laughs> it's so, so strange, that film. I don't understand why everyone likes it. No. <laughs> well, that's the searchers covered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't expecting to talk about that. Now, so, Nick, quickly, I have to mention a thing. Okay. Uh, continuation of my uh, documentary, I don't know, exploration. Because Well, this film isn't a documentary, so it's called Chappaquiddick. I'm going to have fun spelling that on the YouTube vid. Chappaquiddick, yeah, Chappaquiddick. Um, and it's a it's a biopic. Uh, so, right, I'll, I'll just briefly explain what it's about, and then I'll say what I think was the bit I want to, to, to point out. So, it's about... Edward Kennedy, or Ted Kennedy, who is John F. Kennedy's younger brother. Um, but not the one who got set, shot. <laughs> not the one who got shot. A different one, <laughs> right? And it's set, I think... Yeah, it's set in 1969, because there's a, a big bit about the moon landing. Um, which is... So, obviously, both his brothers were assassinated. He has got another brother. Um, but he is then... He's a senator, and he is... Everyone's sort of preparing him his political party is preparing him to be the next um, president of the United States. And everyone thought he was going to be the next. <laughs> Cause United that States. went so well for his two brothers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be a little nervous. Right, you know, third, third time lucky. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and basically what happens is he has a car accident and a young woman, he was, was in his car died in this car accident. 
Um, but instead of going straight to the police or whatever, he tried to cover it up. Right. And this isn't a documentary. This is... No. Well, so this is a... Yeah, this is a biopic. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he tries to cover it up and that obviously goes terribly wrong. And that's the, the, the whole film. You know, spo- yeah. I, I would say spoilers, but again, this is a <laughs> real and um, very well documented event. So... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so firstly, the film isn't very good, mostly because... I don't know. I don't want to say the source material isn't very good, but it's just not that interesting. Because the whole thing is like, the moral crux of the thing is like, he shouldn't have tried to cover it up. And then he's like, at the at the end, he's like, yeah, I know I did a bad thing. Sorry. <laughs> and that's sort of it. <laughs> and it's like, it's so a bit nothingy, you know? Right. But so, but the bit I found really interesting, right? So they recreate, so um, Edward Kennedy or Ted Kennedy gave a very famous, like, uh, apology speech that was broadcast, you know, all over America and had a massive viewing of him apologising for this, uh, for you know, vehicular manslaughter, essentially. But, but, so then what the film... And they recreate that, like, shot for shot of the, of the speech, but with the actor. Um, but then what they do after it is they show actual archive footage of how uh, people reacted to that. You know, like it, they showed actual news broadcast footage of 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 the actual time in 1969 of people going out and asking, oh, you know, what did you think of his speech? Or how do you think, you know, what do you think he should have done? How did you react? Yeah, and I thought like <clears throat> that was so interesting because that really, really grounded it in reality and made it seem really real and was like, oh, this is actually, you know, genuinely how people reacted to it. And I thought that was just such an interesting um, idea to use the actual footage of the people at the time. And it's like, that's that's a very cool thing. The rest of the film's not very good, but that bit was good. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, you didn't see Bombshell, did you? No, I haven't seen Bombshell. No, because um, that was based on the um, sort of the uh, uh, institutionalised sexism within the Fox News Network. I remember partway through that film, they had... Um, I don't think it was footage, I think it was just sort of still images on screen, but they had, like, photos of real-life victims who came forward and, what and like, quotes from what they said spliced into this film, which is primarily a um, dramatisation, although in that sort of Adam McKay way, where it sort of had turned to camera and sort of explaining things. Yes. Yeah. Um, also reminds me of, have you seen Black Klansman? No, I haven't. Oh. Uh, because, uh, not quite the same thing, but at the end of that, they have, a, um, they have real news footage from um, the Charlottesville attacks. And like box oh, yeah. pops from that and stuff, which juxtaposes what's happened in the film, which is set in the seventies, and it sort of makes the point of like this is still a problem in America today. And that was a very powerful ending. Like that was a, that really hit me hard in the cinema. But it's, it's interesting that method of being able to sort of punctuate essentially a, a a non-fiction story, but that's been dramatized, but with real-world accounts to give you that sense of no, no, this happened, you know. Yeah, and give I mean, it that what, what was interesting punch. in in the film, it does a lot of way sort of make you think he's uh, he's really shady yeah you know like he um he puts on this neck brace to pretend he's he's had an injury and he tells everyone he was concussed and that the doctors gave him sedatives when in real in real life if doctors gave him sedatives and he he was concussed he would have died you know and it's like he he just lies and lies and lies but what was really interesting was i, I thought this this film was trying to you know, make him out to be a bit of an arsehole. Which, well, you know, he obviously was very shady, but I don't think he was. He obviously didn't mean to kill her, and he did have a lot of remorse for it. But then what was interesting is I thought, 
everyone's reaction to his apology because my reaction to his apology was oh that's bollocks you know he's just saying that to try and get back onto people's good sides but then showing the actual archive footage of people being like oh you know it was just an accident oh i don't think he's he's that bad blah 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 blah. and it's like oh wow that's that's really interesting because that's you know that's clearly what the, the the actual people thought and that's completely different to how you know what i think today and what uh, what i imagine that the same reaction today would be completely different I just thought it was interesting giving it that the perspective it needed that it didn't would have, would have otherwise be lacking. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, well, I just thought I'd bring that up because it was an interesting little little thing. I caught that. Um, I think it was on, on. I don't know. I don't know. It was on. It was that was a shown on BBC actually. Um. So I'm you not would, sure when? Would you recommend the film then? Um. No. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's just, like, it's just not, but other than that bit, you know, it's just not very interesting. <laughs> because there's no ambiguity at all. Like, he just absolutely should not have done it. And, and there's no being so. like, yeah, and he even admits it. And there's no like. There's no conflict at the there's start no, of it. Like, yeah, there's no conflict. It's just like, yes, I shouldn't have done that. I was a bad person. And it's like, <laughs> that's enough. Okay. <laughs> And then he steps down as senator, I, I believe. Yeah, it was it was okay. <laughs> okay, should we move okay. on? <laughs> yeah, well, we can, we can move on from that. Okay, um, I've got a little, well, not so much a review, but uh, a sort of discussion I thought was worth bringing up. Okay. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I saw the uh, film Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is sort of considered a classic uh, from yeah. the sixties. But so here's the interesting thing. So it's based on a um, Truman Capote novel. A sense of like New York in the 60s and sort of um, these socialites uh, living up in this sort of the New York life. But, you know, they, underneath they have their own personal problems and it's not all all great in the you know, yeah. most broad sense. But so basically, as far as I can understand, the original sort of novel or, or play, I think it was rather, the main two characters sort of, they're supposed to be like sort of cool girls or, well, one's a cool girl, one's a cool Boy, would it be? A cool boy. I don't know. <laughs> a gigolo, whatever. Either way, they're sort of big. They're... <laughs> but there's, so there's, there's, there's clearly, um, and it, so in, in the film as well, there's this sort of this clear hint that they're both sort of in some way trading their sort of their company for money. Yeah. But so like this, so this film came out in 1961, and there's this, it's this really interesting thing where it's the story itself is full of these sort of like darker, more adult subject matters. And yet the film is coming out of Hollywood where censorship's still a big thing. And it just doesn't have the sort of the wiggle room sensor-wise to talk about its stuff in any great detail. <laughs> yeah. This, so it's a really interesting ca- case. Like, so for example, there's a sort of, um, there's a subplot involving sort of cocaine smuggling, which is sort of brought up in the film briefly. And then it, at the end, it's like, oh, and she's been arrested for smuggling this cocaine. And then it's all like, oh, but she's been let off. It's all cool. Oh, ha- well, what was happening with that? Oh, no, it doesn't matter. She's fine. She's, she's gone. Oh, okay then. So that w- that was fine. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's cool. And like again, it's like th- there's this clear indication they're supposed to be sex workers. And it's like, oh no, no, it's um, it's, she she just gets paid by these men and they just hang out together. I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay, sure, sure. And also, like, so also, um, and the ending of it. There's this whole thing in the in the cab where it's like, because essentially it's a romance between um Audrey Hepburn and this other guy who's they live in the same apartment. Wait, is she a cool girl? Yeah, that's the implication. But she's sort, of, sort of, 
she she saw like this sort of high class sort of socialite in in a way. She's very much sort of um she she projects this sort of outward personality of um you know being this sort of great with people and a party person and all about that fun sort of you know free life. But in reality, she's quite damaged on the inside. It I I mean I haven't read Great Gatsby, but it, it feels like what I think the Great Gatsby is about. <laughs> okay. Right. I don't know. If, if, sure. I, I mean, that sounds sort of it, vaguely it's, similar. It's, it sounds similar. I haven't read it, yeah. so I can't say. But um, Great Gatsby's quite good. Yeah. Film's all right. What, the Baz Luhrmann one? Yeah. Okay. Surprisingly. I mean, I I haven't seen it, but I hate Baz Luhrmann with a passion, so... <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, so Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um. So it's a romance between these two, and it's a sort of a bit of on and off again throughout the film. In the end, they're in a taxi together. And the guy's like, you belong to me. You know, you can't, because she's trying to flee the city. Like, you can't you can't go because you belong to me. You're supposed to be mine. And she hits back with this great line, just like, no one belongs to anyone. We, you know, we're all free to, to do whatever we want. And it's like, okay, that's a really interesting sentiment, especially for the era, um, when it's like the beginning of the second wave of feminism. It's like, idea of like, you know, you don't belong to a man. You can do what you want. You can be who you want and be with who you want. And that's fine. And then she storms out of the taxi, and he sort of follows her, and then they make out in the rain. <laughs> it's like, oh, what, what? what? What happened to not being yours? What happened to being free? <laughs> so, so it's this really interesting thing again, where it's like, oh, we're trying to do something a little more daring for the era, film-wise, but well, because we, yeah. well, it's like we've got we've got to pull a Hollywood ending out of this, what clearly hasn't got a Hollywood ending in it. So it just, the message of the film is introduced and then randomly just like, and chuck Val aside and kiss. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting at the point of history is, so like, so for some context, a year before 1960, Psycho came out and was controversial, not for any of a murder really, but because there was a shot of a toilet being flushed on screen. Really? Yeah, which caused great controversy because like, oh, it's, it's a, you know, toilet, it's a private, we can't show that, it's obscene. It's, it's, it's not for polite viewing. Even though it's not anyone going to the toilet, someone flushing... I believe it's money down the toilet. It's been a while. But, you know, it's not. they're not using the toilet like that. It's just they flush yeah. the toilet. But that was that controversial. That's amazing how times are changing. Yeah. But then consider 1969, Midnight Cowboy, a film expressly about a male gigolo in New York, which was also... It was X-rated, but it got... I, it was certainly nominated for Oscars. I, can't, I think it won Best Picture, but Citation Needed. I believe that's correct, though. But consider, that's only eight years later, and that was that film was very openly and explicitly about a male prostitution. So Breakfast at Tiffany's is in this really weird location in history, because this is the right of a tail end of sort of the decline of Hollywood, and the rise of things like French New Wave, which would then sort of reinvigorate Hollywood to begin to counterculturalism in the late 60s, early 70s. But like, and you can even see it in the film with this sort of this whole socialite angle. Like, there's this party scene quite early on, which is full of this ver- these sort of very absurd party guests and sort of strange, you know, almost quite comedic sort of um sort of moments happening with these characters in a way that feels very reminiscent of something like Jean Luc Godard in that sort of very absurdist French comedy. Like, you can see the influence of Nouvelle Vague starting to seep in at the edges. But this this film is a sort of weirdly positioned where it's still. A, a story about that in five years' time would have been fine on screen, but it's just in the sort of the fronds of censorship where it can't express itself properly. It's just a very fascinating film to watch to see it sort of struggle against its own its own context in in history, really. 
What do you think of uh, Jean-Luc Godard? Um, so I've only seen Pierre Lefou, I think. I don't think I've seen any of his other films, so I'm not sure. But for, based on that, I mean, so Pierre Lefou is interesting because it reminds me a lot of Un Chien Andalou, um, which was famously um, Dali and Louis Brunel trying to adapt their dreams into a short film to see how it would be. And the same way Pierre Lefou feels like someone's basically just like taken a dream and made it into a film. Like there's no logic, there's no plot to it. It's sort of just randomness, but not in like a bad sense. In a way, it's all like it, it, you know, it feels like a dream. Everything doesn't feel quite real and it feels quite surreal, but it's sort of still comedic. So it's interesting. I, again, I can't comment for the rest of his works, but I feel like you have some comment <laughs> on Goddard coming up. Um, he, hold on, is it him the one that? Or is it Francois Truffaut? I think Truffaut is the one you've complained to me about before. Oh, okay. Maybe I've got them confused then. Right, Jean-Luc Godard, is he the one who... Um, did he write a book on um, Hitchcock? Was that him or was that also Francois Truffaut? That's the the famous interview is Truffaut and Hitchcock. Right, yes, yeah, so it's Truffaut that's the wanker then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not a fan, Ben. Oh, f- f- he, I really, really, really don't like Francois Truffaut. Uh, because he's a he's he's a dick. He's so far up his own ass that he's just I just despise him. And also his whole thing of like we're going to completely deconstruct how to how they normally make films, and they you know they have the the uh, the jump cut and all this stuff. And it's like half the reason these these very basic filmmaking techniques exist is to make the film coherent and enjoyable yeah because Francois Truffaut's films are fucking terrible they're very very um obviously they're important to uh to film history yeah but they're not good to watch (laughs) one of his films is just watching a man driving around Paris waving a gun at people it's like why why (laughs) which one's that uh uh, that's a good point. I can't remember which point what that <laughs> Cite is. Cite your sources, man. Cite your sources. But also, I'm, I don't know. I mean, there's probably more to this, but there's a, the big irony about how he, you know, hates Hollywood films and despises the the like factory nature of it and the the um he, he likes the auteur, you know, it being one person stamp. And he hates the Hollywood factory. And then he is a massive fan of Hitchcock, who is famous, you know, one of the most famous Hollywood directors of all time. But even then, Hitchcock was also, you know, the grand auteur. He was pretty much the person... He, he, the, the term auteur was developed for him and his films. So, I mean, it makes sense in that case that Truffaut was so sort of madly in love with Hitchcock. Platonically, I'm sure. I don't <laughs> Hitchcock's also a creepy weirdo. He is creepy, yeah. Oh, well. Well, that's enough of bashing that band. It's not even who you were talking about, so... (laughs) Uh. We did definitely do uh, uh, John Luke Goddard as well, but I I don't remember um, much of his work. Breathless, he might, is probably the big one that most people know, which was sort of the influence of Bonnie and Clyde, somewhat. Okay. Yeah, Pierre Le I saw at uni. But I mean, you're right, because Pierre Le was it was an interesting experience, but I wouldn't watch it for fun, you know? Yeah. It, well, a lot of those films are, like the French New Wave films are, 
aren't you know aren't entertaining <laughs> no and this is sort of going back to what i said before like you know how how great are films that don't actually entertain you and hold your attention but there's, but there's a difference between you know not want like that i wouldn't watch any of um Francois Truffaut's films again because they fill me with rage and I just don't think they're good and they're very revered as being these masterpieces and I think they're, you know, something a a 10-year-old YouTuber could curl out. But comparing that to to Rise of Skywalker, I mean, I wouldn't choose to put Skywalker on again, but if it was on, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't really moan. Whereas if someone put on fucking anything by Francois Truffaut, I'd be like, can you turn this off? (laughs) Well, see, exactly. Like, if I... If I had to choose between watching Pierre Le Fou again and watching Rise of Skywalker again, even though Pierre Le Fou is a much better film and much more worthy of existing and says more, I'd probably yeah. choose Rise of Skywalker because it's a it's an easier watch and it's more enjoyable. But you know, there are there are high art films that I would love. And like, you know, I talk about Tarkovsky quite a lot. I'm not sure if I mentioned him on the podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, That's what, a surprise. What, but the, but, the, but you know, the reason I go on about him quite a lot is because even though his films, a lot of them are very long and they are very artsy, like they're some of the artsy films I know, they're still engaging. They still hold my attention. I still want to rewatch them, which yeah. is why I value him so much because he's one of those rare examples of, of a filmmaker who's incredibly artsy and sort of philosophical and very very much far away from that sort of Hollywood style of filmmaking, but it's still accessible and it's still enjoyable to watch. And, you know... Yeah. I just hate these 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 movements. Um, I mean, they tend to be from Europe, of, mm. like, people... These, these film movements of... Um, yeah, like a group of people deciding that they don't like the Hollywood things and trying to do the complete opposite, right? Because there's the French New Wave. There's... Um, do you know Dog, Dogma 95? I am familiar with Dogma 95, yeah. yeah. I had the rules of Dogma 95 printed out and put on my wall at uni because I was a complete and utter nerd. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Dogma 95 is another thing. I hate the Dogma 95. Have you mm. seen Festin? I have seen Festin. I also don't like it. <laughs> I just fucking hate that film. Like, it's so bad. Like, there were, there is a reason Hollywood has developed this, like... This method is because it works and produces entertaining things. Doing the complete opposite is like, you know, fucking, I don't know, like what, you know, bashing your head against the wall to try and open yeah. the door because you've refused to use the handle. But the thing that's interesting about Dogma ninety five is, I believe, I'm not sure about in the beginning. I think there was there was some idea that uh, Vinterberg and Lars von Trier, who came up with it, were doing it yeah. sort of to prove a point about it. But at any rate, later on they have, firstly, the supposed Dogma 95 canon, most films in it a bit break at least some of the rules anyway. Yeah. And secondly, they both disowned it and been like, yeah, that was stupid. Yeah. And, you know, it's not the right way to make a film. Because, yeah, just, oh my God, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah. I just I don't understand how they are, are revered as much as they are and how taking making a film that is just objectively like not how you make a film like oh yeah you're not allowed to use a tripod oh yeah just go and give your entire audience motion sickness because fuck you hollywood you use tripods it's like what well (laughs) you say that 1917 probably didn't use a tripod at any point no but at least but they had stabilization you know this is all handheld stuff but I mean, 1917 are... went out of its way to at least be stable during the bits that should be stable. But say in like Festin, when all the fucking people are giving the speeches and the camera's like, they've given it to an old man with fucking Parkinson's and he's shaking the camera as much as he can. 
Mm. And it's like, can you not just put this on a tripod so we can try and focus on what's on screen and not be vomiting the entire time? Well, I was going to say, I was thinking about like... very um, passionate about (laughs) my hatred for Doug 95. (laughs) Well, because I was was going to say like, you know, there's no reason why a handheld film can't work. But then I suppose normally, an entirely handheld film is normally to do with um, the way the story is being told. Like, I mean, found footage is the obvious example. Um, That's the other thing. Like, um, you know, in, in found footage films... It works because you don't see half the things. But in a film where the visuals are very important, <laughs> not seeing half the things is <laughs> very well, detrimental. Well, see, this is the interesting thing about Dogma 95. Because, you know, because the whole concept is basically like, oh, we don't want excessive visual flair. We want it to be as stripped back as possible to, to, yeah. to not distract from the drama. It's like, it's a film. It's a visual medium. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not theatre. Film is not is nowhere near as close to theatre as most people think it oh is. Oh my god! Because that's a theatre thing—the idea of like don't distract from a drama, you know, strip it away and be sort of minimalist. But that's yeah. not what film is about. And film is, as one of my lecturers used to say, film is closer related in a, as an art form to painting than it is to theatre. It's all about yeah. telling a story through visuals. And Dogma Ninety Five spits in the face of that. Which, it just doesn't make sense, because, I mean, again, going back to Hitchcock and, and pure cinema, and, um, like, the uh, German, is it German surrealism? Um, y- yes, I feel like there's another word for it, but I can't remember what it is. Yeah, neither could I. But yeah, that's... Sort of 19... Expressionism, that's it, German expressionism. That's it, yeah. I knew it was yeah, yeah. But, you know, this, this, this way of... Um, making the screen as interesting as possible to look at and being able to have the audio completely shut off so you can experience something that only cinema can do. And then, like, that is one of the most unique selling points of cinema. And then putting that in the bin and shaking the camera like there's no tomorrow. Because they say the the best films are ones where you could turn the sound off and still understand everything. Yeah. Which is in many ways why I respect silent cinema so much because it is because it's exactly that, isn't it? Yeah. But there was a there's a thing like um, I know it's all it's all to do with anti anti Hollywood sentiment, mm. which is fair enough, and it's very easy to get you know we are anti Hollywood in a way like how we hate Disney so much because it's just this Hollywood machine. Well, that's not anti Hollywood. That's more anti corporate in terms of because it's not well, about that's, that's what they are mostly against though, isn't it? The the corporate yeah monopolization of cinema because the thing is the as you were saying the the, the sort of the codes and conducts of making a film of you know the, the language and grammar of editing of cinematography and all that they're yeah. there for a reason and the best films i've ever seen are, are films which use that but again yeah, combine exactly. it with an engaging story and you know and like grip you in and entertain you but still have an interesting artistic message message or question yeah you know things like ex machina for example or apocalypse now but then well, it's just weird that they choose to 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 throw that away as like a a fuck you to Hollywood. Surely, I mean, I don't know about you, but what I would think is is the best way to to be anti Hollywood is to make a film outside of Hollywood that is better than Hollywood films, not making a film that is just worse but doesn't use any of the Hollywood rules. Oh no, it's just bad. <laughs> I think. So the, the interesting thing, though, is because these films almost have to exist. And like, even though they're not good yeah. films, they're sort of, they, they represent... I don't deny they are massively important to film history as well. Like, the dialogue is hugely important, as, as is French New Wave. Because the thing as well is, like, you know, and I'm sure we're both guilty of this, but when you start as a film student, 
the first thing he's going to do is like, oh, I'm going to make a film that breaks all the rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I tried then, to make a film that was backwards. Yeah, I, I I never saw that. Was that any good? Yeah, it was all right. It was it wasn't as dreadful as I thought it would be. So, you know. no. but like, I, I feel good. like films like Festen almost exist to show basically when a film student starts getting rebellious to show them be like, no, 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 don't go down this path. <laughs> Stick to the rules. Yeah. With that being said, people do like Festen. Like yeah, it, that is true. Like. Um... One of my lecturers like absolutely loved that film. And it's like, how? How like can it, you like this film? It's so like, bad. It was on IMDb's top two fifty for a while, certainly. And that's while it's not by any lecture the best films of all time that list. It's certainly a you know the most popular films in some ways. Yeah. So it implies there's at least some I hesitate to say mainstream attraction to it. But yeah, I I couldn't figure out. I was bored by it. <laughs> and it's a, it's a shame because the story itself is interesting. It's just yeah, it's horribly present presented. Yeah, like the story is uh, if you if you remade that film with a fucking tripod, it would be watchable. Like the film is interesting, and it's like a very interesting um, look at family relations mm. and dealing with a very very difficult subject matter. And it's like it's so the the lack of polish, you know, the lack of anything that would make it a, a watchable film is so distracting that it takes away from the drama. Ironically. And it's like, yeah. just put it on a tripod. <laughs> that's just, which is, you know, that's that's the irony there, I suppose. But that's just annoying. I'm really glad I did the uh, took the uh, European film module. <laughs> yeah, because it was a uh, it was interesting. Kind of wish I got more choice in modules at university. Yeah, I didn't take the horror module because I'm a puss. Because I, I really like the horror genre and like learning about it, but I wouldn't want to watch all the films because I'm also a wuss. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like a horror film has to be very, very good for me to, you know, want to watch it. Like Midsummer. But again, like Midsummer, I didn't really realise that was a horror film until afterwards. Yeah. Okay, well, this, this is an interesting discussion we could have quickly. What would you say are like your favourite... Do you have favourite horror films or like horror films that you like, you know? So, Alien. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's just it's such a good, good film. That's definitely a horror film. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that is all, always my go-to because I really, really, really like that film because the characters, or at least the main character and most of the characters, aren't incredibly well, yeah. stupid. Well, the great, the great thing about Alien, I mean, I'm, I, <laughs> it's been like what eight years since I did that video review on YouTube. Yeah. And I couldn't come up with a, a criticism of it then. I still can't come up with one now. It's almost like a perfect film. Yeah. But yeah, you're, you're right. The characters are sort of what makes it so strong. Yeah. Because firstly, there's not too many. There's like the perfect number of characters. But and they're, they're all, you know, they're not, none of them are stupid. They all react in ways that are understandable for the situation. And like, they, they're all so well characterized as well. And they're, yeah. all, they're all different, but all established about equally as well. You know, it, it doesn't just feel like in like other slasher films where it's like, oh, these are the ones which there's like the main character, the one which will die second to or the one that will die last, I guess. And then the rest of the buffet in Alien, it's like here is the crew and they each have a job. They each have a personality, they each have a role. They feel like characters rather than, you know, disposable uh, monster fodder. Yeah, they don't feel like they're there just to die, you know, to have yeah. a scary on screen death. I mean, most exactly. of them don't even die on screen. That's 
An interesting point, actually, yeah. Because, um, I mean, if you think about it, like, um, in modern horror films, like, most of the characters exist so the, the monster or the bad guy or whatever can kill them in a horrific way on screen to try and terrorise you that way. But That's for really- me, Alien is so much more scary because it doesn't show you it. And again, with that, that you know, the fear of the unknown, isn't it? I've just gone back for it. Only two of them actually die on off screen. Off screen, okay. Well, I mean, well, yeah. In terms of completely not, we don't see their demise, right? And it's just implied. Most, of, I mean, most of them are quite rapidly edited, but they are on screen. Okay. Enough yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> I've such an encyclopedic knowledge of Alien. I literally just watched like the last hour of it in my head and like noted down which deaths are which. Oh my god. I love that film. It's a fantastic film. So is that is that your like your one? Is that the one What's good the, horror the, film you the know? The one thing that comes to mind, obviously, Midsummer okay. as well. Like thinking about it, yeah. Again, more and more. I just like it more and more and more. Not only because I feel like there's a huge amount of untapped meme potential in that film, <laughs> but also because uh, the just the way it makes you feel. No other film has really done that before. I feel like. Right, Andy. Yeah, I've got to make you a horror watch list. <laughs> okay you're, you're, you're tempting fate because you know i mean, you know i was talking about last week about horror you know there's good horror which, well there's, there's bad horror which is just like boo ah and then there's yeah. a good horror which is all about atmosphere and creating a, a, a powerful sense of dread <laughs> yeah like midsummer yeah so i, I want to make you a list of powerful sense of dread horror films okay it's gonna be like a substitute well not so like a, a parallel series to andrew's film education andrew's horror education great <laughs> Um, shall I list some now? Um, sure. Okay. Well, okay, so off the top of my head, Hereditary, we've discussed, you need to see. Yeah. Um, also, Annihilation. Yeah. I do keep banging on it, but I think you will love it. And that's also, that's another film, I think, like Midsummer, which is all about atmosphere and just dreading every second on screen. Yeah. Like, just this horrible tension throughout. Um, The Witch, to some extent, not quite on the really same scale. I do really want to see The Witch, actually. The One other horror fantastic. film I've just remembered, actually. Um, yeah. A Quiet Place, or The Quiet Place, whatever it's called. A Quiet Place, yeah. A Quiet yeah, Place. Yeah, that is good. That is actually, again, one of my favourite films. Hmm. Well, not of all time, but that's definitely one of my favourite horror films. Because the, the in tension of... in that film is just unbelievably good. Hmm. The The build-up with the um the nail on the stairs is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, like that is so, so good. Hmm. Also, I really like the the story about, you know, how it's a, a family and it's not just a bunch of stupid teenagers. And again, like, yeah. John Krasinski does everything he can. And they're actually well prepared. Yeah, he's very well prepared. Yeah. He does everything he can to to tackle it and they still don't manage to do it through this series of bad things. Like, it's, it's very good. Yeah. I haven't okay. seen The Exorcist, but Mark Kermode bangs on about how that's the best film ever made, so maybe I should... <laughs> Well, see, the thing is, I watched... I can't remember if I read the book first or watched the film first, but I read the book at any rate. And the thing is, and it's sort of the same with The Shining, which is another film, a horror film that's talked up a lot. Yeah. But the book is so much better in The ex- in the Exorcist than the film, I feel. Right. So, I don't know. But I, I feel like a lot of characterization of a demon in The Exorcist was lost from the book. Because there's a lot more nuance to it. Yeah. I also um, have another another horror film. <laughs> yeah, that go on. I think is good. Um, the thing. Yeah. 
Have you seen that now? Yes, I yeah. love, I absolutely love that film. Again, like, oh my god, I love it. I don't know, it's just so good. Because so, yeah, um, that I'm gives ex- me, that's the, like, again, like this sort of cosmic horror thing. Yeah. Which is great, and I just feel like it's a great horror film, it's a great action film. Kurt Russell's great. <laughs> it's just really cool. See, I have a strange relationship with the thing. Because I remember I, I rewatched it recently. Yeah. And I remember thinking like I, I felt I feel like the pacing was really lopsided because the first hour it's like it's all slow and all build up. And then it sort of all just goes it cascades from like the hour mark onwards. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, oh, it should, you know, build up, then release, then build up and release, rather than just do all build up and all release. Mm. But then I realised that's basically what Alien does. Yeah. So I then rewatched Alien the next day after having this thought, and it was fantastic. Yeah. So there's there's this weird thing where I, I've not worked out why the thing doesn't grip me as much as I really want it to. So, I don't know. I don't have that. I really like the thing. Yeah. I really like it as well because of the use of um, like the the props and the uh, practical effects yeah. is amazing. Like the effects so are good. phenomenal, and I just think like not having this CGI clusterfuck that's all in the dark and boring. It's like this insane dog tentacles, man jaw, head crab thing. <laughs> hmm. Have you heard about, you know there's the um, the prequel from 2011? Is that a prequel, is it? Yeah. I thought it was it, just a straight it, remake. Nah, it, it explains what happens with the, um, the research team where the dog comes from in the beginning and they go yes. and explore. It yeah. says what happens there. Okay. But so from what I've heard, they yeah. try to recreate. They recreated all the practical effects, sort of similar and with similar methods to the eighty-two one, because they they all loved the film and they want to try and do it justice. Yeah. And then in the edit, the producers were like, "Nah, this looks like too dated, whatever," and they covered it all with CGI. Oh, why? Which is why it looks so trash in in the final one. It looks like really cheap last-minute CGI because it is because it was all practical effects that were just covered up. Well, why didn't they do a a, a practical effects cut? <laughs> There might be one that exists, I don't know. Maybe not. But like if you there's like um if you find behind the scenes stuff online, you can see like all the contraptions they built up, all these like, you know, interesting um sort of costumes and stuff, I suppose is the best way of you know, to yeah. do the transformation sequences and then it's just yeah, just all covered up. That's good. Oh man. It's a great film. But yeah, more more I'm just gonna I'll bring we should probably bring this section to an end. I feel we've been rambling for a while. Yeah, we have. But I'll I'll just do um at least one last film for you to watch, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, so I was just looking at that because again, that's something um, Mark Hamode says is is one of the scariest yeah. films of all time. I, See, it's, I it, do want to watch that film. It's great because it's like there's not there's not a drop of blood in it, but it's also in particular like the last sort of it must be maybe hour half hour maybe forty minutes is so. It's not. It's not even necessarily atmosphere as such, but it's so. And it's. It's really. It's. It's strange to really pin down why it's so freaky, but something about it is just so unnerving, so uncomfortable. Like it, you sort of. You almost go into a trance watching it. It's. It's. It's really difficult to explain, but it's definitely worth a watch because it, it's. In the same vein as Midsummer, it's all about that sort of like this dread, and this sort of yeah. horrible sort of encompassing thing that sort of swallows you up. Okay. I will, I'll give it give it a watch, maybe. You should. <laughs> oh, because also I'm like really reluctant to watch horror films because I'm I'm a person. 
it's like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is fine. It, yeah. Again, like, it's, but it's, it's not. It's not gory. gore. Yeah, gore isn't the problem. Gore is fine. Like it's not that. It's the the being spooked. I just don't enjoy being spooked. Ah, I've just remembered my other recommendation. I'm just gonna squeeze this in. Okay. Wreck. Wreck is. I've only watched it recently because quarantine. Lol. Because <laughs> it's a battle quarantine. Right. <laughs> It's it's uh, it's so underrated. It's it is Wreck. probably the best execution of found footage I've ever seen, how and it you, makes how, me. S- how are you spelling that? Um. So square bracket R E C oh. close bracket. Oh, wreck is in record. Okay. Yeah, you'll you'll probably recognise it. It's quite famous, but it's oh right. That is another film that was just partially because because of, of the found footage, but it's done so well that it feels so real. And it gets under your skin. Because it's just so convincing. Nineteen ninety nine, yeah. No, two thousand seven. Sorry, there was another one. The first result on Google was uh, nineteen ninety. There's a wreck from nineteen ninety nine. This I've got to look up now. There is an American remake of Wreck called Quarantine on. I think it's on Netflix, but it don't just don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. What language is it in? Spanish. Me, I might have seen this actually. Oh. No, I don't think I, so. I feel like you you'd know if you've seen it because it it. I still think about it. Okay, maybe not then. <laughs> but it's like without without spoiling. Yeah. Because I I do little um I record my own little audio reviews now when I finish a film just to sort of get my thoughts down. And I did it with Wreck, and it was like late at night, and I had to keep pausing and sort of listening because I was like I I it made me scared of the dark again. Which apparently isn't a very difficult thing to oh do. Oh my god, everything does, yeah. <laughs> but like, I kept pausing and I'm just listening, so I'm like, did I hear something? Is there something out there? Is someone just going to burst through my door? Okay, um, right, come on, yeah. Nick, let's wrap this up. We've been banging let's wrap on this for up, ages. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right, you've been listening to the Cine Rambles podcast. We have me, Nick. And me, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I've changed this, haven't I? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> this isn't the script. <laughs> Oh, right, you can, uh, where, Andrew, where can people find us? Um, they can find us on YouTube at cinerambles.youtube.com. That's not how the That's URL not... is, but whatever. Right, moving on. You can also find us on, on Twitter, I guess, maybe, and Facebook. Yep. Sure. Um, and uh, what, cinerambles at blogspot.com if you want to Nick, read Nick's ramblings about stuff. <laughs> Specifically, Star Wars, Mostly and the Star links Wars. for Facebook and Twitter. Since you didn't mention, <laughs> I did mention Facebook and Twitter. No, fa- but where where on Facebook? It's facebookcom official and you can tweet us at cinerambles at at cinerambles. I mostly got that. <laughs> you should just leave my rambles in, because this is oh, cinerambles after all. <laughs> this has been quite a cinerambles-y episode, you know. Really has. We, I mean, we had a whole a whole plan, and we've just done like none of it. <laughs> Yeah. Half the items we just skipped. <laughs> yeah. But we had oh, a nice well. impromptu discussion about Dogma 95 and horror and yeah. Truffaut. Yeah. yeah. So have you got any closing remarks then? Um, stick it on the tripod. <laughs> Why does that sound like a sex education tip? <laughs> it does a bit. Oh well. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.